I am generally a fan of decriminalization. And now people like me, we're faced with seeing people using on the streets, the consequences of that. And I think it's okay to say, all right, now let's see what it looks like, what it feels like, how it affects people's safeties, how it affects quality of life. And I think it's okay to say, I've learned something from this and I may want to take a different approach. Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Corey, uh, tell us about what's going on on Stitch This this week. Well, Wednesday, we've got a new episode of Stitch This with Corey Bradford, a cool TikToker. His name is Ernest Krim III. He's actually an educator, a teacher uh, in Illinois, actually. And he did an incredible interview where he talked about just how he uses TikTok to educate people about black history and things like that. But he also talked a little bit about being an educator in general in America during, you know, how complicated that is these days and everything like that. So it was a really cool interview. So check it out. Stitch This. It will be available wherever you get your podcast from beginning at 6 a.m., I believe, on uh, this Wednesday. Great. Well, this is our first time back in the studio in a few weeks. Where are we going to start? Well, Robbie, on today's show, a potential prisoner swap to get WNBA star Brittany Griner out of Russian prison. We'll discuss the implications of all of that. San Francisco has a brand new DA after voting to recall Chase Boudin. We'll check in on what's going down in the Bay. And some lawmakers are saying TikTok just isn't for you if you're an American, because apparently China may have access to some of your personal data if you use TikTok. We'll discuss just how serious that concern may be. But first things first, we begin with breaking news from the tech world. Elon Musk is pulling out from buying Twitter, that is. And this could set the stage for one of the strangest corporate legal battles in recent memory. A company that never wanted to be bought is planning to sue the richest man in the world and make him buy them. Elon Musk announced Friday that he was ditching the Twitter deal, but the company says not so fast. We still got a deal and you're going to go through with it. So, Ravi, is it even possible to force this deal to happen? Or what do you see as the possible outcomes here? Well, I think, you know, the issue here is Elon Musk made an offer to buy Twitter. And in the contract, there are a couple of interesting things. One is there's a $1 billion penalty if Musk, if certain conditions aren't met, including if Musk couldn't line up financing, for example. And that's really important. And also, you have this question of the value of Twitter and how it's been affected both by the market and by Musk himself. And you've seen the stock tank since over the past few weeks and months. And so when Musk is offering $54.20 to buy Twitter, and now it's today trading at $32.65, it was even down before he uh, made it clear he's absolutely backing out he's getting the sense that this is a bad deal. And so he's trying to get out of it. And so this is going to go to uh, Delaware Chancery Court, which, you know, just as background, 1.8 million businesses in the U.S. are incorporated in Delaware, including two-thirds of the Fortune 500 companies. This is a place where a lot of corporate business gets done. This is not going to be a jury trial. And they're going to be asking two questions. One is, is Musk citing something that would allow him to get out of this contract, which he's claiming that uh, Twitter misstated the number of users that are bots. So that's just a legal question. Uh, and then if they say you can't, that is a possible way to back out of this contract, then the court will be asking, did Twitter misstate those numbers? So it might not even get to a finding of fact. They may just say this is not a reason to back out of the contract, in which case they will try to force him to buy the company. 
potentially. There are a variety of other issues that were in his complaint, at least according to Musk and his legal team. Um, they said that there were false and misleading representations upon which he relied when entering into the agreement, including the spam account kind of back and forth. He, they say that they rejected or ignored multiple requests. And then also there was a concern over a third of their talent acquisition team being laid off without him being um, consulted in that, which would have been probably a breach of that contract. And so Musk's legal team is saying that he's been on notice, or they've been on notice since June 6th. Um, but then Twitter has turned around and said, we've given you access to what they call the fire hose of all of their data. If they, if he wanted to do his own independent analysis of the spam users, they believe that he could have given that. Um, and so now the Twitter board is saying that the rem they're remaining committed to closing the transaction and they're holding by their 5% estimate of bots. Well, I think it's not clear that the anything that you named is even what they would call a material breach in the contract. And from what I understand, there's you know every article is peppered one corporate legal expert after another saying just how hard it is to yeah. claim a material breach of a contract. It almost never happens. Like the one case I could find was involving a hotel company in China, and what they found a material breach was you know, something that made it so that it was impossible for the, the acquirer to, to get insurance because there was fraud happening within the company that wasn't disclosed. And I think in this case, there's a contradiction at the heart of what Musk is saying. He's saying that Twitter misstated its numbers, but then he's requesting the information saying he doesn't have it. So how do you know they misstated their numbers? He's not citing any data to say that they misstated their numbers. And it's very possible that Delaware will even say, even if they did misstate their numbers, that's not a reason to get out of this contract. So I, I do think this could get really hairy really fast. Yeah, that is the literal single time that that sort of um, complaint has actually prevailed in, in the in the court. And I think for from Musk's perspective, if he gets off with a $1 billion fine versus buying a company that's now, since the tech stock correction overall, so overvalued at the rate that he was offering, like it, the, the calculus does make more sense for this to have some more nefarious intentions under the surface, even though I am still ideologically aligned with the idea, my utopian idea of a free speech Twitter. Well, it's but. also, Corey, inconvenient that he has multiple times publicly stated that one of the reasons why he wants to buy Twitter is to clean up the bots. So he's acknowledging that there's a ton he, of bots he, there and that's one of the things he's excited to address. Yeah, I mean, his whole thing was he said he wanted to get rid of all the bots on Twitter. Like, like that was his main goal. Number one. And number two, back in 2018, Elon tweeted that bots on Twitter was a problem. So he, him saying that, oh, I didn't know it was this big of a problem. Elon's filing didn't provide any evidence to back up his assertion that that estimate of bots was inaccurate or that there was an alternate calculation out there. But what I'm very interested about is this specific performance clause that Musk agreed to, because this is what's basically going to uh, possibly force him to buy this company in the end instead of just taking that $1 billion hit. So can you explain to me, Robbie, what specific performance means in that legal context? Yeah, I think the background here is that, you know, when we first covered this, you know, I said that I thought this was a really good deal for Twitter. It's only become better over time yeah. now that the market has crashed. And I think, you know, the, the Twitter chair being really savvy and their lawyers enforce it. Like they seem to negotiate a pretty good contract for themselves. And essentially what this is going to come down to is there are four possible outcomes here for Twitter and Musk. One is that there's a settlement, which is usually what happens in these cases. But I think given the nature of who Musk is, I'm a little skeptical that that'll be the outcome here, just given the how, how much bravado he's showing. And, and you know, I think his proclivity not to want to lose publicly uh, for his fans. And then there, are, I think if this goes to court, there are three options. One is that they find in Musk's favor uh, and they let him walk away. It seems like almost every corporate law expert I have read, actually literally every single one, 
doesn't think this is even a possibility. Two is that they find in Twitter's favor and then award a $1 billion judgment for Twitter, which would be that that penalty uh, that's in the contract. And then the third, which is what you're talking about, Corey, is even more severe, which a lot of people think is very possible, is what they call specific performance. And basically what this means is if there's a situation in which a court deems a financial penalty insufficient to remedy the loss or the breach, they can force you to carry out that contract. So for example, let's say I have a, uh, a broken down pickup truck in my backyard and I sell it to you, not only because I want to sell the truck and I want to make money from it, but because my daughter's birthday party is the next day and I need to get that truck out of my backyard. Let's say I go to my court and they say, let's pretend it's a really fast court. They might say, all right, you not only have to give me the money you promised me if you want to back out of this deal, but you got to get that damn pickup truck out of my backyard. That would be specific performance. I see. So in this case, the equivalent of, of getting the pickup truck out of my backyard would be buying, buying the Twitter. company. The problem, though, is that Musk is not the only person who controls whether he can buy Twitter. He has a lot of financing lined up. So I think the problem in this case is that Musk is not the only party who controls his ability to carry this out. There are, there are people who are financing his deal. The thing that I find really puzzling here, though, is that the $1 billion clause, which would be the probably the best outcome at this point for Musk, could have been exercised if he showed that he wasn't able to get financing. Yeah, He could have easily fucked up his own financing and then just said, hey, like he could have half-assed the, the money raise. He could have you know, he, he could have done like a little wink, wink and nod to his, his financiers to say, all right, like, you know, this is not in our interest anymore. The financiers probably would have backed out anyway. So he kind of screwed himself by publicly stating that the bots is his reason here because yeah. now he's lost credibility. And I think he's handed Twitter a huge win in, the, yeah. in that they'll eventually use in Delaware Chancery Court if it gets that far to say, even if he's claiming he doesn't have finance, he's already stated uh, his motivation to back out of this contract in, in a way that doesn't exercise the one billion, but where there's much, much more at stake here. Well, he was leveraging t t uh, Tesla stock as a part of getting the financing and Tesla stock has uh, dropped significantly. It's down 50% from their all-time high back in November. Yeah, he's lost a billion dollars in, uh, in sort of- Is it a billion? I'm sorry, a hundred billion dollars. Yeah, yeah, a hundred billion dollars in net worth uh, from for Elon Musk. So he could have easily went with that excuse, but decided not to. I think this is just super unfair for Twitter. I mean, Elon essentially threw a bomb into this organization. And it's so weird because this organization has been so crucial to Elon Musk gathering so much social capital. I mean, he's become this huge figure in part to his uh, his personality on Twitter. And why would you want to destroy the thing that has gotten you so popular? Well, I just don't understand. I have it. a question for you guys. Why didn't he do that is the big question to me. Like, that's the big mystery that not enough uh, articles are raising, which is why didn't Musk take the easier out I have a theory, which is ego. If he says he couldn't uh, line up financing, that's kind of like a tough look for the world's richest man. Because I think like, you know, for him, he's like, yeah, I can do anything. I'm going to take control of this platform. I'm going to reform it. And then if he's like, hey, I can't find the financing, I think like he's not the type of person who's making decisions with a boardroom full of advisors yeah. who would have stopped him here. And in many ways, that's a strength to Musk. But I think in this case, it really let him down because now it's the cart pulling the horse and his lawyers are having to cover for him for, for decisions that really are going to, this could cost him so much money that it totally liquidates all of his um, his liquid assets. And we're left to start selling more Tesla shares, which is why you're seeing Tesla stock hurt alongside 
Twitter stock because I think people are anticipating a possibility of a major sell-off and Delaware courts move fast. This is not going to take years. This maybe takes one to two years maximum, but remember they could do a finding of law really fast. The findings of fact take a while. That's where discovery comes into effect. But if they do like a motion to dismiss on this saying that he's not even raising a claim that relief can grant, then this could, this could be wrapped up really fast and Musk will be on the hook for a lot of money. Yeah, he's trying to save face right now on Twitter. He tweeted this meme like of him kind of maniacally laughing and saying like, oh, Twitter is going to have to like deliver all their data now into court and prove that they were lying in the first place, which I mean, the 5% data was based on like a really shaky study of like 100 random accounts that they picked. And it's Twitter, like they have the ability to do a lot more. But it seems like he's trying to to save face now with those tweets, ironically, on Twitter. But um, there have been a lot of reactions and, and theories that he's more of a scam artist, including from Trump. Elon is not going to buy Twitter. Where did you hear that before? From me. From a fake account. She says fake. A lot of them. Nah, he's got himself a mess. You know, he said the other day, oh, I've never voted for a Republican. I said, I didn't know that. He told me he voted for me. So he's another bullshit artist, but he's not going to be buying it. He's not going to be buying it. Although he might later, who the hell knows what's going to happen. He's got a pretty rotten contract. I looked at his contract. <laughs> wow. It's, at this point, it just seems like he's doing an impression of himself. Like, I, I don't even know. In response to that, Elon Musk actually took to Twitter and basically said, you know, because him and Trump have been somewhat on good terms for the most part. But then he took to Twitter. He said that he thinks Trump is basically too old to be president. Uh, he even said that Dems should call off the attack. Don't make it so that Trump's only way to survive is to regain the presidency. He's given political advice to Democrats now. I'm not sure why Musk is doing that since he doesn't like Democrats, apparently. But but what do we think about this claim that he's making that Trump is too old to be president? Because in, in, in that particular case, Biden would be way too old to be president. Well, I think this is the week uh, for you know the debate about the age of the president because there was a poll released over the weekend by the New York Times Siena that showed that 64% of Democrats want a different nominee mm-hmm. uh, than Biden. And the number one concern they raised was the Biden's age. He uh, is the oldest president ever right now and would be even older uh, in a second term. Yeah. And I think anybody looking at Biden and looking at Trump, these are not the most lucid, clear thinkers that we've ever had, nor are they representative of the American people. So the average American is 38 years old. Uh, and the average age of the U.S. Senate or U.S. senators is around 63 years old. So uh, the U.S. Senate, the presidency, not representative of people. And I don't want to age discriminate, but I do want you know governmental bodies that in some ways represent us with the right kind of distribution of age and life experience. Yeah, and that polling data gets even more staggering when you control for just Americans under 30. 94% of young Democrats want a different candidate um, from the on the Democratic ticket next time around. And I think, you know, it's, I mean, definitely agree that Trump and Biden are not the most lucid people. I don't know if age is really the factor with Trump, but definitely more so with Biden. But I think, you know, I don't know that I believe in a strong cap. I think that voters should serve as that cap and should hold people to account. But um, certainly when people are going into a potential eight year, two term situation, when they're as old as someone like Trump and Biden are, like we're seeing some of the results and it's often a little embarrassing for all of us. Just a few facts here about Joe Biden's age. Joe Biden was a toddler when the invasion of D-Day took place. (laughs) Joe Biden's 21st birthday took place two days before 
John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And Joe Biden is older than the last four presidents. For the last 30 years, we've had presidents younger than Joe Biden. And the yeah. first time he was elected, he he's such a definitional career politician that they had to wait until his birthday to swear him in. He was yeah. so young. He was one of the so he's senators. just yeah. he's he's not ready to head out quite yet, but yeah, I, I don't see him running for another term. And if oh, he, I do. And if he does, I, I think, see him losing. I think what, yeah, well, I do think what would happen Aye. is it would be the first time in our lifetime that, or at least in recent memory, that there was a serious primary contender against somebody running for re-election. There have been primary contenders, but th this would be the, the first time I think you start seeing somebody winning states, if not beating him outright. Yeah. And... I think a lot of people are looking for this. That's what the polls are showing. I think, you know, one thing to sort of close out this this Musk stuff is like, I think like this debate playing out publicly for, for Musk, I'm wondering what's gonna happen right now with Twitter, just like as a public forum. Like, you know, they've been basically letting go staff, changing major leadership. Musk did have a vision for it. For all of the criticisms of him, he had a vision for the company and it, it could not get worse, in my opinion, than it is right now. And I think that it's going to flail. And it, it, this is at the point now where they're not going to have the kind of resources to invest in any of the major innovations that a lot of people are asking for it. So I think that's one of the saddest things here. Yeah, no matter your opinion of, of Elon Musk, this whole fiasco makes him look very irresponsible from just a business standpoint. But we'll have to keep an eye out on it. WNBA star Brittany Griner is involved in a very unusual kind of trade rumor right now as U.S. officials weigh a prisoner swap to get her out of jail in Russia. The other guy, that would be Russian arms dealer Victor Bout, currently serving a 25-year sentence in U.S. federal prison. Ricky, before we get to that, just walk us through how Griner came to be detained in Russia and what's happened in a month since. So this stretches all the way back to February 17th, like right around the time when Russia invaded Ukraine. So in the most tumultuous point of American and Russian relations possible, um, she was traveling in Russia to uh, be a professional basketball player outside of the WNBA um, uh, season to supplement her income. And she was found to have hashish oil vape cartridges, which are um, like marijuana oil vapes in her luggage, which is against the narcotics law in Russia. And she's been detained ever since. And she faces up to 10 years in prison with a 99% conviction rate. Um, and she was declared wrongfully detained in May and just on July 7th decided to plead guilty in the hopes that that would uh, get her a more lenient sentence. Clearly, the, it's unambiguous from the American perspective that this is a wrongful detention. But then the question becomes, in a moment as turbulent as this, how do we go about potentially facilitating a prisoner swap? I mean, at what point are we responding to blackmail by saying, here's someone that's been lawfully detained in America that will swap for someone who's being held hostage, essentially. And then there's also other Americans who are wrongfully detained, including a um, U.S. Marine who's been there since 2018 on espionage charges. So fortunately, her situation has brought attention to all the other Americans that are additionally um, unfairly being held in Russia. But it sounds like there's a potential that we could swap for Victor Bout, who is known as the merchant of death for being an illegal arms dealer who's been arrested and detained 
detained in America for quite a few years now. So yeah, Bout is a pretty serious arms dealer. He was sentenced to 25 years in federal prison in 2012 after he was convicted selling arms to Colombian rebels, which prosecutors said were intended to kill Americans. This guy has also been involved in running guns to uh, human rights abusers in Angola, Liberia, Sierra Leone, Democratic Republic of the Congo. Basically been charged with fueling civil wars in Africa, killing anywhere from hundreds of thousands to possibly more people in, in those conflicts. So pretty serious guy compared to a WNBA star who had you know some some marijuana bait pens so i don't know if that's a one-to-one trade but this argument about her being unlawfully detained or or you know like her detention is not legal or something like that i mean technically what she had was an illegal substance in, in russia so i think is it, is it just that we're just looking at this as much more of a harsher punishment than what what the crime warrants yeah i think you can both believe that we need to do a lot and put pressure on russia to get her back in addition by the way to a bunch of other not famous people who've been detained including mark fogel who's an American citizen who basically was convicted of the same crime that nobody's really talking about. And so I think it's true of famous people, not famous people. You should do everything possible. The U.S. should to get them back. There was an interesting interview recently with Mike McFall, who's a former U.S. ambassador to Russia, where he talked about Bout, who, as you said, was convicted of conspiracy to kill Americans, right? This is a serious crime. He also said that it's very possible that Bout is involved with Russian intelligence, which is why they would be motivated to bring uh, to, to do a swap in the first place. And what McFall said that I found was interesting is that there's a difference between a spy for spy swap, which is kind of how business is conducted, you know, like, you know, if a diplomat is revealed to be a spy in one country and another and they get locked up, you know, that's something I find way more acceptable for a swap than swapping somebody who did something as low level as Griner for somebody who is an international terrorist and arms dealer and bout. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to get her out. It just means that that swap seems highly inappropriate to me. Yeah, this is an argument that's been floated a lot about Griner, that if she was a male NBA star like LeBron, like Steph Curry, something like that, she would be home a lot faster. She would already have been home now. Let's take a look at what Griner's coach had to say about this situation. If it was LeBron, he'd be home, right? Yeah, it does. It's a, it's a statement about the value of women. It's a statement about the value of a black person. It's a statement about the value of a gay person. Um, all of those things. And uh, we, we know it. And so that's what hurts a little more. I don't know if I 100% agree with that. I, I I agree that the U.S. would probably fight a little bit harder because it would become much more of a publicity thing at that point. But I do think Russia would still use that person as a bargaining chip to get someone like Victor Bout or someone else out of prison. I don't think Russia would just easily say, oh, you're a huge star, so I'm going to let you go. I think they, they would make it an even bigger uh, hassle to get that person back because they were so valuable. But I do think the U.S. would probably go further out of its way to get somebody on that higher level back. I do agree with that assessment. I feel for this coach, but one thing she didn't say is how famous any of these people are because the non-famous people we don't talk about like mark yeah. like so there's a one standard for famous people and there's another standard for other people i do bet there are also gradations of how famous you are and how much the american public is going to care but griner's benefiting from that too yeah right like really? if we didn't know who she was we wouldn't be talking about her just like the other people who are locked up in russia and in other places around the world but once again, I feel for the coach. I feel for Griner's family. We need to, to to get her out. We just can't set a standard where people can lock up American citizens for you know either not committing crimes or for menial crimes, and then try to use them as bargaining chips for people who are international terrorists. Then we'll have to like literally empty out our our prisons of every international terrorist we have because everybody with a motivation to get those people out will kidnap Americans. Yeah, you know? yeah. I think unfortunately 
what we've seen is kind of the opposite of what the coach is discussing, where her level of notoriety is the reason why other Americans are even being talked about in the first place in Russia who have been detained. And I give Griner a lot of credit because she wrote a handwritten note to Biden in which she said, like, don't forget about me, but also all the other people who were wrongfully detained here as well. And so the silver lining in this situation is this is someone who's notable. This has, this has spurred like a lot of domestic outrage over the fact that she's still being detained and it's shed light on people that admittedly I've never heard of that have been there for years on end. So um, it's a really unfortunate situation. But yeah, I mean, it comes down to just how much so- social credit you kind of carry in, in our culture and how much attention you're ultimately going to get. San Francisco has a new district attorney, Brooke Jenkins, who once served on the Chase of Boudin before quitting and supporting his recall, will take over as the city's top prosecutor. Ravi, what is Jenkins looking to change in the city by the bay now that she's in charge? Yeah, well, we've previously covered the recall of Chase Aberdeen in San Francisco. So the way this works is the mayor, London Breen, now appoints uh, Brooke Jenkins, but Brooke Jenkins has to quickly run for re-election in November, and Chase Aberdeen could be on the ballot. So it could be a showdown between these two uh, characters, I think. Boudin uh, only got 36% of the vote in a ranked choice election the first time he won, and then he was overwhelmingly recalled. So he'd be facing an uphill battle. But, you know, Brooke Jenkins now is on the hot seat, and it's not easy to reform a system like San Francisco because although uh, I was sympathetic to the recall proponents, San Francisco still is a city that didn't like business as usual before either. So I think when Jenkins comes in, she's going to have to straddle, and now she's in, she has to straddle, uh, you know, rolling back some of Boudin's overreach while also not going back to the days of old of like the law and order 1990 style Gray Davis or whatever type uh, criminal justice policies or um, Pete Wilson really more accurately. And so she's basically said this publicly, like crimes aren't victimless, which is weird that she has to say that publicly, but let's actually hear from her. This is right after she was sworn in. This is what she had to say. You know, we've taken an approach in San Francisco for more than the past two years of seeing certain crimes, like I said, as victimless or as less of a priority, which is what we were saying about property crimes in particular. And no longer can we take that approach. She's also made statements about how um, that they need to change the tone in general in San Francisco to say, no, we're not indifferent to crime. There's accountability in San Francisco. And if you commit a crime here, there are consequences. And she's described how Boudin was leading the um, DA office as a sinking ship. But now the real question is on a pragmatic level, what things does she start to scale back? Some things even uh, came before Boudin came into office, a lot of the movements to be more progressive um, in the way that we prosecute crimes in San Francisco. And so what what are some of the biggest questions that she'll have to wrestle with? Yeah, well, I think the, the context here is really important, which is she served under Boudin as an assistant district attorney and quit due to disagreement about a murder case in which uh, a an insanity plea was used. And she has been publicly critical of Boudin throughout the recall, saying that he's basically acting as a public defender, which Boudin previously was, Mm -hmm. while in the prosecutor's office. So I think the biggest change is you're just going to actually have somebody who's trying to be a prosecutor and understands the adversarial relationship of our criminal justice system, where you have a prosecutor and you have a public defender, but you can't have somebody trying to do both. It's not the British system, which is how it works over there. Now, uh, in this case, there are certain things she said explicitly. So she's explicitly said she's going to end open-air drug markets, uh, which means the the 
effect of that is going to mean that she's going to prosecute both use and dealing, which is a big deal. Interesting. She's going to aggressively prosecute property crime, which is obviously, mm-hmm. as we've covered, a huge issue in San Francisco. And she's going to hold repeat offenders accountable. If you remember when we previously covered this, there was this weird uh, situation where Boudin was reluctant to use somebody's criminal history against them. And so you had this situation of people committing many, many crimes and it not being uh, viewed as relevant. Uh, to their case. And then there are certain high profile incidents of people being let out with extensive records and doing pretty horrendous things. So those are the things that she said explicitly. And then there's a whole bunch of issues that she hasn't said enough on yet that Boudin uh, was you know, pretty different on and that she's going to have to make decisions on. That includes ending cash bail, charging minors as adults, sending people through diversion programs, which she started to outline her plan for that. And whether to follow California's three strikes law, which Boudin has explicitly repudiated. Basically, he's been, you know, uh, he's been, there have been some adverse legal decisions against him. He is, he's been flouting the California law. Courts have tried to force him to adhere to the three strikes law. That's obviously relevant to the criminal history stuff that I talked about before. So she's going to have to make a decision on those and a host of other issues. Yeah, as a former resident of San Francisco, I can tell you, um, the crime was never terrible there, but it was there was this sense that they didn't really take it super serious. Uh, it's to, just to comment on the open air drug markets that she's trying to tackle, they were everywhere. And I mean, it was blatant and there were like cops that would be around the perimeter, literally just making sure no one was getting killed. It was kind of like The Wire. Remember like Hamsterdam? Yeah, remember that? Yeah. Like it was kind of like that. It was like they were just there, you know, guarding the perimeter to make sure people didn't get killed or any shootings happened. But I mean, you people were selling pretty much everything you can possibly think of, which I mean, hey, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, you look at actual Amsterdam, there's a lot of cases to be made that that may be a better system than locking people up for drug crimes. So I'm not sure, but it's going to be very difficult for her to, for, to her to tackle some of these things because some of this stuff is really ingrained in San Francisco society and the way they think about crime because a lot of this stuff has been going on for so long. But do we think that she's going to be more uh, like, you know, Kamala Harris was once the, the DA of San Francisco and she took an approach that was progressive, but she was also tough on certain issues. So do we see her going more down that line? Well, I think this the, the reason why this is relevant nationally is like, what does it mean to be progressive as a district attorney? I think you have people like Bragg here in New York and you have people like Boudin who are pretty extreme like you know when we interviewed Bragg a few months ago back in the fall you know he was saying things like he's not going to prosecute property crime up to a certain level and he was decriminalizing so many different things and I think a lot of progressives like me have mixed feelings about these things and there's also a wait and see approach I think the open air drug markets is an example of where I am generally a fan of decriminalization and now people like me we're faced with seeing people using on the streets, the consequences of that. And I think it's okay to say, all right, now let's see what it looks like, what it feels like, how it affects people's safeties, how it affects quality of life. And I think it's okay to say, I've learned something from this and I may want to take a different approach or I've learned something and I'm willing to put up with this because the the consequence of allowing open air drug markets and not prosecuting use is that our prison systems are less crowded. People's lives aren't destroyed as much. We save money. Right, um, there's less racism uh, entrenched in the system because we obviously know how drug laws are applied. So these are the type of trade-offs that I think progressives are grappling with. So I think I and others have been really hard on Boudin and other progressive prosecutors on some of the stuff, but I also think part of it is just a, a, a give and take that public policy involves. Yeah. yeah, and I would give Mayor Breed credit for picking someone who has the experience of actually being inside that office and seeing what was not working and also picking someone that seems to be 
her her voice sounds a lot more like the residents of San Francisco's collective voice in recalling Boudin, right. which is which is a relief. And I think that even if she just moves the needle a little ways back to a more tough on crime sort of situation, that's an improvement from where they were. And she has until November now to prove to voters that she's going to head down back towards that track of kind of law and order. There was that Nellie Bowles article in The Atlantic, which had a really like a line that caught my attention, which is people of San Francisco, progressive or not, believe that people should be entitled to be paid for the goods that they sell. I think that's a good starting point for us when we're that rebuilding is. the criminal justice system. <laughs> yeah. It's like people shouldn't be allowed to just supermarket sweep their way through yeah. different businesses and just take whatever they want because it's not just big bad corporations, by the way, who are also entitled to sell the goods that you know make money from the goods they sell, but there's also bodega owners and regular people who have very thin margins, especially in a high tax, high you know, high cost place like San Francisco, and they're victims too. Yeah, this is a society we're living in, guys. I mean, we gotta, you know, we gotta remember that, absolutely. All right, so senators are calling on the White House to decide what to do about TikTok. Last June, President Biden revoked a number of orders from the Trump administration that threatened to ban the app or force a sale to a U.S. company, citing data privacy and national security risks. At the time, the White House said it was reviewing its policy options. One year later, the administration has yet to release a plan. And with Republicans poised to take back Congress in November, the pressure could start building soon. Ricky, this all started with the last administration. Why is this coming back into focus now? Um, so part of this renewed conversation is surrounding a BuzzFeed expose that um, that demonstrated that because ByteDance, the parent company of TikTok, is essentially answerable to the Chinese government as a Chinese tech company, that um, employees were accessing consistently personal data of users and including American users. So yeah, historically Trump wanted to be really tough on China, like that was very much in line with his rhetoric. And then Biden has expressed kind of less Chinese oriented, but more general concerns about personal data and protecting consumers. Um, but he did end up reversing some Trump era regulations, but now there's this renewed bipartisan uh, call for an immediate investigation. There was a letter that was co signed by Mark Warner and Marco Rubio saying that, you know, the the American government needs to get to the bottom of what exactly is exposed to the Chinese government, why that's important, what sensitive personal data actually means, what what you can do with that. And, you know, there's I mean, there's interesting theories about um, there's this guy, Jerome Lanier, who um, wrote a book about like 10 reasons why or eight reasons why you should delete your social media accounts. And essentially, he makes the argument that even if you have the control to kind of influence society in a 0.1% meta scale with such a large breadth, like what TikTok has, that could actually be a malicious situation, especially with a nefarious actor like China. I think I agree with you that this is a concern, even if it's like a drop in the bucket, even with a big company like TikTok, which is the fastest growing social media platform, right, Corey? Yeah. I think there's two concerns about what what Chinese government control over this company could mean. One is access to sensitive data, right? Like there's so much of data about what we do on this platform and who we are that they would now have access to. And I think two is different and related, which is that they would be, be able to manipulate the algorithms to push certain kinds of content yeah. to American users. So they could they could basically use this as a propaganda weapon. Now, I'm somewhat sympathetic to uh, the Biden administration's initial rollback of Trump's moves because a federal court basically said Biden couldn't move forward with Trump's executive orders. But then where I'm less sympathetic to Biden is that he ordered the Commerce Department he, I think he gave him six months, six months yeah. to come up with recommendations. And we haven't seen those recommendations. And it's been way more than six months. And yeah, that's, that's why year. I start to lose them. 
Well, full disclosure here, I, I, you know, know a little bit about TikTok, you know, and my, my whole argument here is like, I want to know when we talk about, because I've heard this argument for the longest time. I remember back in 2020 when Trump was trying to take down TikTok. Um, I, I just want to know what data specifically does China have access to by us using the app? I mean, how sensitive is it? And is it any different from the data that all these other apps like Google and everybody else can collect on us and just sell to anybody in the world if they wanted to anyway? That would be my biggest concern here is like, what exactly is the data and how is that a national security risk? Well, so I think there's two points to that. First is that there's so many very young users that like clearly aren't informed enough to be concerned or have the international knowledge to say, oh, I should turn off my location data because China could see it or really understand or conceptualize that. So there's concerns about young Americans being potentially uh, preyed upon by this platform. But then also, to your point, the, the what we're calling for now in this bipartisan sense is a probe. And so we're trying to answer those questions. And I think that, you know, because this is something that's embedded in the pockets and the daily lives of so many Americans, and particularly young Americans, understanding what exactly that means is really important. And so I, I totally support I don't I didn't necessarily support the let's ban TikTok now without actually understanding what's at stake. But I think we need this probe to figure out, okay, why is this important? And we need to investigate that. Well, obviously, there's a lot of manipulation that the the Chinese Communist Party could could implement with TikTok. But you got to remember that the vast majority of the content that most of these young Americans are consuming on TikTok is user generated content. China is not forcing these kids to make this content. They're making it on their own. So it's still reflective of their ideas and what they think about the world. It's not like China pays anyone to say certain things on TikTok. If they paid people to say certain things on TikTok, I wouldn't be living in Queens right now. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, but 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 they, they could manipulate the algorithms. Like if they find certain things that, all right, you know, there are certain users, whether they pay them First of all, they could pay a user and then they could promote that that content if it's helpful to the Chinese government or they can just find somebody who happens to have views that are helpful to the Chinese government and yeah. promote those views. Oh, there's also the question of just how uh, like social media platforms change over time. Like we all remember when Instagram was like the here's a picture of my lunch and then it was like spurring eating disorders and millions of teen girls. And right. so, you know, things can change in the way that they're applied culturally. And then there's also just like beyond the legislative angle, there's an optics question here in my opinion because at the same time that China is saying they're, they just created like a mandate of like specific times that young people can like do video games or spend online. And so they're trying to create like a more formidable youth essentially and very explicitly. And then at the same time, they're creating this product that kind of has all of us young Americans walking around as zombies all day long. And so the optics are, are a little unfortunate well, sometimes. That's, that's just good old American freedom that, that we, you know, we have over <laughs> I'm here. I'm all for the freedom, but I think that I think there's nothing wrong with saying, okay, should we just check and see if there's there's any sort of nefarious intent or potential or loopholes potential that to. need to be yeah. plugged before that comes into play. Yeah. I'm all for the probe. I, I agree with the probe. And it is somewhat bipartisan as the letter was sent by Mark Warner, who's a Democrat, and Marco Rubio, who is a Republican. However, this probe does have a right-leaning tilt to it. I mean, the whole reason why Trump initially went after TikTok, in a lot of people's opinion, and this is just, you know, what happened in June of 2020, there was a rally, a Trump rally in Oklahoma that was pretty much upended by TikTok users who basically signed up to go to the rally, making Trump think it was going to be a big turnout. And then nobody, not, they didn't show up making the turnout a lot less. And that was, a lot of people say one of the last, you know, nails in the coffin as far as Trump's opinions about TikTok. Not to mention TikTok has been used by the youth as a very effective organizing tool 
that are that are and they're mostly organizing in favor of left-wing politics uh tiktok exposes young people to lgbtq content at higher rates it exposes people to content from different countries which you know cuts at you know uh, american exceptionalism tiktok also exposes people to content about some of the ills in american history there are certain history tiktokers out there who talk about that kind of stuff and you know they're they're very popular and so i just think that I just think that the right stands to gain if TikTok is taken down a notch and the left stands to lose. So there's a little bit of a political angle here that I think certain people like Ted Cruz and Josh Howley are engaging in. Yeah, but they could be right for the wrong reasons, right? Like I think like just because they don't like TikTok for their own reasons doesn't mean we can't have our own reasons for, for being concerned about the company. Yeah, I don't think that that necessarily undermines the fact that at least having a probe and making sure from a data security standpoint that this is safe for Americans is a bad thing. And I think it also is good to see that this is bipartisan, that these committees will hopefully kind of regulate themselves by moderating with having both parties uh, at the table and in these conversations. So. Well, I'm willing to go to Congress and, and testify, you know, about my experiences <laughs> on the app and, and let everybody know um, what's really going on there. Thank you all for listening and watching today. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube page. And if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We will see you all next time.